this week in preparing, thinking through some of the slogans we've looked at. And they love to boast of their so-called knowledge. And we've seen this throughout the, the letter. They, they loved being known for knowledge. And that love for being known for knowledge, it drove so much of what they did and how they thought and spoke and, and related to one another. And it caused all kinds of problems. And so we, the slogan we look, you looked at last week, we, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And Paul says, as Eric reminded us, no, it's not about, it's not about knowing, it's about being known. And then, and then they, they, this obsession with liberty, that was the law of the land for, the, for many in the church at Corinth. Their slogan, all things are lawful for me. Paul says, no, it's liberty, not law. It, it, it don't, make, don't remake rights into this new set of rules. And then the, the, the super spiritual in Corinth, you remember from chapter 6 and 7 there, and they, they cared way more about their, their own kind of curated convictions. More than anything else, they thought celibacy, if you remember, uh, even inside of marriage, let alone outside, it put them on this higher plane with God. And so they had this slogan, it's, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Modern paraphrase, girls have cooties. And no, but touch is it's a euphemism for sexual relations, if you remember. And so Paul, so Paul says, no, 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 it's Christ, it's not your convictions. And so what matters is that we are in that section, we are members of Christ. That's what's important. So no, not knowing, liberty, not law, Christ, not convictions, and love above all. And so it's interesting in this letter, and I, I thought about it as I listened to the message, the, the theme of any one part of the letter is basically the theme of the whole letter. And, and it's not always the case in, in, in uh, New Testament books like this, but it's, it's not like each section of this letter is a donut that you pull out of, out of the box, and sometimes you get the maple bacon one, sometimes you get the blueberry one, sometimes you unfortunately get like the lemon-filled one or something like that. Uh, it's not, that's not how this letter works. No, it's like, it's like having a slice of pizza or something or a slice of pie, and so every every. Every piece may be slightly different, uh, but, but, it, but it tastes the same. And this is what's doing. Paul's turning them back again and again and again throughout this letter in every issue he addresses in every section of this letter. And he's wanting them to root themselves again in their identity in the simplicity and power of the gospel. The weakness of the cross, really. And then to live in light of that gospel. And so to the Corinthians, the gospel was just like kindergarten. Just Christianity 101. We've moved beyond that. We, we've advanced far beyond that kid stuff of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We know, we know, as we're going to see, we know tongues of angels for crying out loud. We're beyond that. And Paul says, no, no, no. You, you, you'd never outgrow the cross. You'd never get beyond the cross of, of Christ. You just, you just drill deeper and deeper and deeper down into it. You never stop being shaped by it. And so this is, brothers and sisters, this is a timely word for the church today. We need this word from the Lord, church. I desperately need this word from the Lord, and I'm confident you do too, because there is, there is a little Corinthian in all of us. We are not better than these, this church. We too find that we're often shaped by things other than the gospel, our opinions, our perspectives, our slogans, our convictions, our viewpoints, the little soapboxes we love to stand on and, and proclaim on social media, our little, our little pet issues, our hobby horses, 
our stances, our rights. And so when people think about us, those are the things that most often stand out about us, if we're honest. Those are the things that people would say are most important to us, what defines us. That's who we are. The way we live and think and talk make it seem like those are the big defining things of Christianity. Our ideas about parenting or schooling, our convictions about technology or entertainment, our thoughts on masks, our perspectives on food, our social political stances. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with having those kinds of personal convictions and perspectives. Of course we do, of course we will, and we need to be developing those. We'll talk about that in Sunday, Sunday school. But our personal convictions are not the gospel. And the more we love the gospel, and the deeper we drill down into it, the, the less likely we will be to substitute or confuse the gospel for our personal convictions. The gospel, listen, the gospel should, and I hope it does, drive those personal convictions. But the gospel is never, ever to be defined by our personal convictions. That's a big difference. And what happens when the, when the gospel sort of becomes peripheral and we, and we begin to be redefined by our slogans and our, our, our perspectives is that love for one another begins to shrivel up and die in the church. And that's what was happening in, happening in Corinth. That's what can happen to a church today. It's the gospel that frees us to love one another. Even, even when we're different from one another. Because then our love and our fellowship, as Paul is saying to the Corinthians, it's not, it's not centered around and it's not, uh, it's not uh, anchored in shared thoughts on food. Or whatever the issue is, our fellowship is around a crucified Savior. Our, our fellowship is, a, is, is around a risen Messiah. And, and so when the good news of Jesus matters most to us, then we're free to love one another and let go of things that might distract others from the gospel. Or if I could put it this way, and this is the big idea for us as we look in this section and begin to work through chapter 9. When the, when the gospel compels us to love, then we will gladly restrain our rights. And listen, and this is the wonderful thing, and we're going to get to this. And, our, and that restraint will be rewarded. This is good. Let's, let's see this. So that's my sermon conclusion I was afraid I wouldn't get to it, so just don't be too anxious here. That's, that's the ending. I'm giving you the ending at the beginning. My mom, she had this funny thing. She would always read the last page of a book before she started a book. And so she liked to see the end, how it was going to end before she started. I never understood that. But I've just given you the last page. That's the conclusion, and I didn't want to rush through that. And so now I want to show you how we get there. And so this is that, but that's what this whole section of chapters 8 through 10 is about. I know it's about food sacrifice to idols. And we get to chapter 10, we're going to talk about some of those contextual elements. But this is, this is what Paul's really getting after in the church there. That's what we need to remember as we look through this passage. So now for the introduction, 1 Corinthians 9. Now remember, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, there were no chapter breaks. There were no verse numbers. I'm sorry to burst your bubble if that's how you thought this, this was. It wasn't written in English. Um, 
chapter breaks came along later. Verse numbers came along much later uh, in, in history. So, so chapter breaks, they have obvious advantages, don't they? But they're limited. Now, obviously, they help us find where we're where we at in the Bible. So if you're doing Bible drill, it's very helpful to have, have uh, chapter uh, divisions. But other than that, there aren't really many advantages that I can think of. And I can think of some disadvantages. And one of them is, is that oftentimes chapter breaks will kind of break the flow of a passage. And so it, it, it gives this false impression that one passage has ended and now a new section is beginning. And so this, that, and that can sadly happen here in 1 Corinthians 9 as we come out of chapter 8. And that's why I wanted Eric to start in verse 13. But you notice as you go from verse 13 of chapter 8 to verse 1 of chapter 9... There's, there's this something that might not stand out to you initially, but if you looked at all of the other chapter headings, you would probably notice this, that something's missing here. There's no connecting word at all. There's no and, or but, or therefore, or for, or now, or because. Those connecting words that tend to indicate, okay, there's kind of a new thought here. There's no transition. Paul goes right from verse 13 of chapter 8, eight where he says that he says what he's willing to do for the sake of others And without any transition whatsoever, he starts this long series of rhetorical questions that begins with that first one. Am I not free? So there's no indication whatsoever he's moved on to something else. Now, the the, the, the question then is, what is the connection, though, between these two chapters? Because the content seems kind of different. And so how does it fit? How How does this flow together? Remember, like any letter, but, but certainly in this letter, Paul, Paul doesn't just kind of uh, throw out disconnected verses and thoughts and ideas to us in his letters, uh, kind of where we can just kind of select our little happy little verse of the day and that kind of thing. That's not what he's doing. He's making these carefully constructed, spirit-breathed, tight arguments, particularly in the epistles. There's, a, there's relationship between words and phrases and and, and, and sentences and paragraphs. And so the question isn't, does this fit with the context? The question is, how does it fit? And so some commentators say you get to chapter 9, and Paul's just going down this long rabbit trail. It's a, it's a digression. He, he's talking about food sacrifice to idols in chapter 8, and he's going to do that again in chapter 10. But right in between 9, he, he, he kind of goes off on this other thing. That's not what's happening. In the wider context of this whole section, we can see how chapter 9 fits. Again, go back to verse 13 of chapter 8. He says, therefore, he's making this conclusion, and I'm not going to re-preach Eric's sermon, but if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. I will become a vegetarian. I didn't say that. Paul said it. So don't quote me on this one. Lest I make my brother stumble. Then you go to the end, the the last verse of this whole unit, this whole section is in chapter 11, verse 1, where he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so you see the connection. And in between those those two kind of bookends is Paul setting himself up here in chapter 9 as this model, as this example for the Corinthians to follow. So he's using himself as someone who voluntarily out of love, for the sake of the gospel, waves his freedom, waves his rights for other people. Paul's an example of living in light of, of, of no, not knowing, liberty, not law, Christ, not convictions, and, and love above all. Paul's argument here is, in one sense, very simple and straightforward. He's just saying, let me show you what it looks like to give up rights and liberties for the sake of others so that I don't hinder the gospel. 
That's the main point. Now, he develops it very slowly, but he's making the case so that he can say to the Corinthian believers and get this across to them, they, these Corinthians who clamored for their rights and they boasted in their status, and he's saying to them, choose to be without. Choose to show restraint. Choose to forego your rights. Choose to waive your rights and put others first out of love. Choose to do everything you can possibly do to make sure there's no stumbling block in front of the gospel. And that's going to be a hard sell for these proud Corinthians. Because they're, they're so shaped by their slogans. And they're, and they're focused far more on their rights than they are on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's expecting pushback. And that's, the, that's why the, the, the way that he speaks in this chapter with all of these rhetorical questions, like 15 or 16 questions that he's, he's, he's using this to build a strong case. And we're, if we're honest, though, brothers and sisters, we're probably ready to push back, too. When you heard the conclusion at the beginning, you're probably thinking, hmm, because this is not natural to us. This is not, this has not come easy. We need the Spirit's help. So the first thing, let's, let's kind of set that up again. So uh, as, as the gospel compels us to love one another, our rights, we're going to see them restrained, and then we're going to see the beauty of this, that that, that that restraint will be rewarded. But first, our rights restrained. So what he's not saying here is that rights are wrong. No, rights are good, but, but what he's telling, what he's going to make the point is we need to be willing to restrain those rights for the sake of the gospel and out of love for one another. So Paul is going to spend several verses establishing the fact that he, as an apostle of Christ, has rights, has entitlements associated with that unique role. And so he begins with these four rapid-fire rhetorical questions here. Each one's expecting an affirmative answer. Yes. So verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? So the, the, the questions are just emphasizing what the Corinthians already know. He's not, it's not like an argument or he's making some big defense. He's, he, they could be paraphrased this way. As you well know, I'm free. As you well know, I'm an apostle. As you well know, I've, I've seen the risen Lord. As you well know, you are my workmanship in the Lord. And so after reading verse 13 we can, we can, uh, of chapter 8, remember, we can see why he starts with that question, am I not free? Because that's the issue, that he needs them to start looking at this freedom differently. So he talks about giving up freedom at the end of chapter 8. The Corinthians would probably have thought that this was a little degrading for him to limit his freedom for the sake of the weak. But then he begins chapter 9. Huh, wait, hold on, don't get the wrong. Am I not free? Oh, yes, I'm free. Of course I am. He has a different definition of freedom. They think it's being able to do whatever we want when we want to do it. And he said, no, I'm, I'm free. And the, the greatest demonstration of the freedom is I can let go of those rights. So he says, and then he goes on, am I not an apostle? Therefore, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Verse 2, if to others I am not an apostle, maybe those not at Corinth, or maybe a faction within the Cor- in Corinth that was questioning that, he says, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So he's reminding them a simple fact that their whole existence as a church 
It's, it's the seal of his apostleship in the Lord. That it's, it's the, it was the Lord's work through Paul's proclamation of the gospel there and, and the church planning efforts that he did for that, so those 18 months. This is why they even exist. And so they're his seal in the ancient world. The seal, it, it communicated both uh, authenticity and authority. We see it in the same way. So if you get a letter from Governor Kemp or something like that, on the, at the top of that letter, you're going to have the seal of the great state of Georgia just showing this is, this is, uh, this is uh, real. This is the authority behind that. Or maybe another illustration, just a different way, in, uh, like a cattle brand or something or a trademark. This, this, that's what it's showing. And so that's, that's what Paul's saying here. Their very existence as the church of God in Corinth there, it's a stamp of approval, this mark of authenticity on Paul's apostolic ministry. He's saying in verse 1, you, you can't deny my authority, my status. It's unquestionable. You, you know it. And, and so he's not so much defending it as, as he's using that as background for the argument he's going to make now in verses 3 and following. So then he begins this lengthy illustration from his own life, this Defense to those who, is, who would examine him, he says in verse 3. And so there's another series of rhetorical questions, starting in verse 4. He says, do we, the apostles, not have the right? And the, the answer that's going to be implied is, of course we have the right. Of course we're entitled to these things. And he's going to go on. He's saying they have the right, we'll see, to, to these basic provisions, to food and, and material provision. And so verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? We take a believing wife. It, the, some of your translations, I don't know if they allude to this or not, but it, literally sister wife. It's, it's a reference to the family of God. She's your wife and she's your sister in the Lord. It's a believing wife. Beautiful expression. But he's not asking. Now, Paul doesn't have a wife currently. We, we talked about this already, but... He's not asking, do I have the right to go on, you know, apostlematch.com or something like that and, 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 and find a, a match or something like that and have a believing wife? That's not, that's not he, it's, it's a hypothetical question. If I had a wife, wouldn't I have, wouldn't I have the right to expect that you would, you would provide for her needs as well, that she could come with me and, and, and labor alongside me and be supported by you like others are supported with their wives? Verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? The implied answer, of course not. Of course not. Now, Paul's not, I don't think he's saying anything really controversial here. He's just building this case. And so all of this is simply serving to assert positively the, the nature of the rights of the apostles and other laborers for the gospel. They are entitled to material support. So then he broadens his argument with, with these three other kind of illustrations, examples of this principle from ordinary, natural, common life. So you see it in verse 7. Who, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? I mean, when someone enlists to be a soldier, they don't take a year to grow you know, produce and root vegetables and, and raise uh, you know, animals so they could have meat to go and, and soldier. No, they're saying the, the army provides that. The provisions, the rations, the food, they come from... From free of charge, without charge, just by virtue of soldiering. And he says, who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? The vine dresser has every right to go out and eat some grapes. And, and, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? The shepherd has every right to drink some of the sheep's milk. At this point, there's, there's this assumed subsistence 
that's yours when you labor in your role. And notice it's not the title that gives these people the right to expect this this provision. It's their labor. It's because they're doing the work. So it's not the soldier and the and the shepherd and the, and the vine dresser. It's, it's the one who serves, the one who plants, the one who tends. It's the work. Okay, so he's made his point, right? His argument's clear. We get it. Let's move on. Oh, he's not ready to move on. <laughs> he's not done yet. He, he keeps building his case. Now he turns, he really kind of tightens it down, and he turns to biblical support. He looks to the Old Testament to show that that he has the right to expect material provisions for his apostolic work. So there's more questions. Verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority alone? Of course not. Does the law not say the same? Of course it does. In other words, I'm not just speaking these things from a human standpoint. No, no, there's more weight behind this. For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's Deuteronomy 25 Four, I mean, the point is if the ox is doing the work, if it's on the threshing floor with that yoke on its shoulders and it's walking around in circles, you know, he has the right to stop and eat some food of his labor off of the ground. And then he asks, is it, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Of course not. That's the implied answer. Now, that doesn't sound great to the ears of the animal rights folks. And if you're one, I'm sorry. Now, is God concerned for oxen? Sure. That's what Deuteronomy 25.4 is honestly about. But what's Paul's point here? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If God is going to provide for and protect a dumb ox, don't you think he's going to be concerned to provide for those who preach the gospel? That's what he's saying. Now, if you don't muzzle an ox, don't muzzle the preacher. Now, I think it's a little degrading that he compares preachers to oxen, but uh, I don't know. Verse 10, does he not certainly speak for our sake? And now he doesn't even wait for them to answer. He, he doesn't let them guess. He says, it was written for our sake. That's why I think he's communicating here. So Paul's applying the quotation to the apostles and their rights. And he goes on, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Again, the same point. Person working with grain, sowing it, and then threshing it, they, they will expect to enjoy the fruit of their hands. Then in verse 11, Paul starts to bring it together. If we, if we then have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? The implied answer in this rhetorical question is no. Of course it's not too much. It is not a big deal at all. Makes total sense. That's, that's his point. There's, there's something natural, there's something expected about that. And, and quite, he's made clear, there's something very biblical about that. You, you've sown spiritual things in the context of preaching the gospel, what he's made very clear in the earlier chapters of this letter, imparting the true wisdom of God, which is Christ crucified. The message of the cross. If we've done that, is it, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So the Corinthians don't appear to have refused others 
of financial help. And so certainly Paul's saying, hey, I'm, we, I'm the one who planted the gospel there by, by the Lord as he called me in there. And I've labored to see it grow for 18 months. Isn't there even more right for me to expect provision from you? So he's been laying this case out now for 11 verses, showing convincingly that he, as an apostle, is entitled to support, and it's all a setup. It's a long setup for what he says now in verse 12. Look at verse 12, the set midway through. Nevertheless, now that, I know it's not as obvious in English. I wish I could like you know, bang something here. This is a strong contrast, strong nevertheless. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We had the right, but we did not use it. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We have the right. We have the entitlement. We have the status. We are laborers. Common sense and divine revelation both show that laborers can have the right to be supported. If anybody has the right to expect it, it's us. And yet he says, but we did not use it. We didn't use the right and the authority and the freedom that we had. Why? For the sake of the gospel. And notice it's more than we didn't just, we didn't use the right for the sake of the gospel. No, he says what? We endured all things so that there would be no hindrance to the gospel. We sacrificed. We endured, endured everything. We endured hardships and hunger and need and lack and exhaustion and difficulty. Paul has been and always will be determined that nothing, nothing at all should get in the way of the gospel of Christ. And if his, if his apostolic right to financial assistance should do that, he will gladly let go of it. And so the point he's making for, with them and with us is this, is what? We must learn that if we have so-called perceived rights... Ours, too, must always be subordinated to the gospel of Christ. So the big idea, when the, when the gospel compels us to love, first thing we'll see is we will gladly restrain our rights. He's an example of this. So our rights aren't bad, they're not wrong, but they're not what matters most. Christ and His gospel and His people matter more than our rights. So we will restrain them at times for the sake of the gospel and out of love for others. Now you get to verse 13. Like, all right, he's made his point. No, he's not done yet. Verse 13 and 14, they kind of read like it's somewhat of an afterthought. Like, you know what? I've got one, I've got two more witnesses I'm gonna put on the stand. I want to make this case airtight. And these are these are like saving the best for last here. And so so he 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 brings these two more very powerful examples, one from the priesthood and one from Jesus himself. So verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in temple service, they get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offering. So there was built into Israel's law and into Israel's system of worship the fact that those who ministered in the tabernacle and later the, the temple, those priests, they, they got a portion of the grain offerings and of, of the animal sacrifices. That's how, that's, how they, that's how they lived. And it was probably true in the pagan temples as well. So again, his point is just the temple 
temple priests. They can, they can partake of the food offered in sacrifices. Listen, so should we. Verse 14, in the same way, the Lord, Jesus himself, he commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, this is the big, the big stick here Paul pulled out here. It, that, that the final and decisive authority for the, quote, right to financial support as an apostle, it's found in the words of Christ himself, the Lord commanded. Now, the pre, he's used examples, he's used illustrations, and you kind of have to draw parallels to apostolic ministry, and you, you kind of lessons that you can glean and learn and make comparisons. Now he says, no, this is, this is just a matter of obedience. This is what Jesus commanded. He ordered, he directed this. So he doesn't, he doesn't quote Jesus' words directly here, but, but he, he's summing up Jesus' teaching on this matter. Remember, Jesus sent out the 12, sent out the 72. Part of that, he said they were to depend upon the provision of those they ministered to. And then his conclusion is that the laborer deserves his food. Matthew 10, 10. So this is the point. We, we have rights, that's good, but our rights will be restrained at times for the sake of the gospel and out of love for others. Love above all. That was the point he made in chapter 8, and that's what he's illustrating here in chapter 9. All right, now there, the other side of that. So when the gospel compels us to love, our, we will gladly restrain our rights, and then the second part of that is our restraint will be rewarded. And let's see that quickly. Here's 15 to 18. When we, we get to verse 15, notice what happens. He re- reiterates what he already said in verse 12, essentially. He says, but I have made no use of any of these rights. So he made this airtight case for apostolic rights to financial support. And I think, why did he spill so much ink to do that? If now he's saying, I, I don't, I'm not going to claim those. But he's he, 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 it, all leading to this conclusion. He's building this for emphasis. And he's saying, hey, I haven't made use of any of those provisions. No entitlements. And the I is very emphatic. But I myself, or I, as for me, on my part, have not used any of these rights to receive any support from you. Then he makes something very clear before he's misunderstood. We, we understand how this works. You, you ever have a conversation with someone and you, you kind of know and anticipate what that person is probably thinking and what they're going to say in response. And so you sort of preemptively say some things anticipating that response. Well, this is husband and wives. Oh, all right, I know you know about this very thing. Don't act like you're above this. So Paul knows what the Corinthians are going to say. So he says in verse 15 there, uh, the second part, nor am I writing these things to secure such provision from you. It's like, I'm telling you, I, don't, I deserve, but haven't made any use of these rights. But wait, wait, wait. I know what you're thinking. I'm not, this is not like some, you know, reverse psychology, some little verbal jujitsu to kind of get what I want out of you or anything like that. That's not what's happening. I'm not saying this so you'll turn around and say, okay, Paul, just take our money and just be quiet. All right, we get it already. No, I'm not trying to manipulate, exploit you, get you past the plate or anything like that. And, and so we know people who do this kind of thing, right? I mean, Eric and I have lunch, and he's every time. It's like, you know, I was going to buy you lunch, but I left my wallet at the office. And I get it, Eric. I, it's, I see through that. No. But, but Paul's not writing to make sure he receives his rights. That's not his point. That's what he's saying. It's the opposite. He's offering himself as an example of one who, who gives the gospel absolute priority as he lives his life. And look what, what he does. This is great. Verse 15. In the verse 15, he says, For, here's, here's the purpose. This is why. I would rather die than 
doesn't finish the sentence. He doesn't. Now, if you have the New American Standard, if you have the ESV here, they finish the sentence for you. But that's poor translation. And I love both of those translations. But they, they ruin the power of this verse here, of the rhetoric here. What Paul says is literally something like, it is better for me rather than to die than, ah, I, I don't know what his kind of verbal gesture he gives. Uh, but he, he, just, he just can't finish it. He doesn't get the rest of it out. He just stops mid-sentence. There, there are fancy words to describe this particular literary device, and we're not going to get into that. Parents, you know intuitively what this is, don't you? You don't know the name of it, but you know this. You start a sentence, and you, let's just say there's a lot of emotion in it, and, and it starts to come out of your mouth, and then you just cut it off. The, the New English translation does a great job here. He says, it would be better for me to die than, and then there's just a dash. There's strong emotion here. If we were to finish the sentence, he probably would have said something like this. And of course, we don't know for sure, but it, it would be better for me to die than, than take a dollar from you. Or better for me to die than, than to put a stumbling block in front of the gospel. So there's this tremendous amount of energy and emotion here, and he just breaks off his thought. And, there's, and then he says very emphatically and abruptly, and again, it's not as obvious in ESV here, but he says literally, it's better for me to die than, and he says, no one is going to deprive me of my ground for boasting. Or more literally, no one is going to empty me of this boast. I love this in Paul. It's many places in his letters. There, there's this magnificent integration of the power of a very logical mind and a full-throttled emotional heart. Both of them coming together. And that, that's here Paul with, with great emotion and making this very detailed argument. He writes to them and he says this very striking statement, No one will empty me of this boast of mine. Now, boast, that almost never sounds good to our ears, does it? Uh, I mean, we, we see this on social media. We do it on social media, and it's fine, but when others do it, it's like disgusting to us, right? Uh, but, but in Paul, boasting is often good. It's this robust expression of praise to God. We've seen this in 1 Corinthians already back in chapter 1. Remember, he made this case, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were, not many of you were wise or powerful or of noble birth and and God chose the foolish and the things that are not. He chose the low things. And, and, and why? To bring about, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And he says, it's because of him you are in Christ Jesus. And, 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 you, and he came to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and, and redemption. Why? So that it is, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So God in free and sovereign and electing grace, He does what, what he, does so, he does that so, uh, th so that nobody can boast in themselves. God chooses nobody's like us to put His grace and His glory on display so that it completely undermines our ability to boast in ourselves. No one who experiences God's free, sovereign, unconditional grace ever can say I praise me because I am so deserving of God's favor or I praise me because because I'm so insightful so as to embrace the gospel no one no one can say that 
Listen, there's zero difference between you and me and the most wretched pagan that you can imagine. The only difference is the free grace of God. That's the only explanation. And if that's true, then there's no ground for boasting in ourselves at all. None. So there's one kind of boasting that grace obliterates. And there's another kind of boasting that grace elicits and draws out. Now you tell me what kind of boast Paul's talking about here in verse 15. If you've been with us in this letter, there's no question. Paul's boast here is in the God-given ability to preach the, the gospel of Jesus Christ with no strings attached to those who will hear so that they might hear of the love of God in Christ, be reconciled to God for the glory of God. So that all praise goes to him. This is what he's saying. And Paul says, the fact that I've, I've freely received, now I can turn around and freely give. I glory in that. That's my boast. And I'm not going to let you Corinthians empty me of that boast and the ability to boast in what God has put, on, put in me and done through me. And then he has these four sentences. We're quick here. And they all begin with the word for. And they, they're amplifying that previous sentence, verse 15. So he says, for... If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Now, that may sound, but he's, he's, what he's saying, he's not saying, he's not boasting, hey, I'm out preaching the gospel. Look at me. What a guy. All the sacrifice I'm making. That's, he's saying, no, 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 because when I preach the gospel, I'm simply doing something that I basically have no choice in. He goes on, for necessity is laid upon me, or, or I am under compulsion. It, 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 this necessity, is, it's laid upon Paul. He can't take credit for it. He can't glory in it. it. It came on him involuntarily. That's how grace works. And so Paul, Paul's not, Paul wasn't talking to a career coach or ta- sitting down with someone, you know, what do I want to do with my life? And I think I'll be an apostle maybe. Just see, that sounds cool. No, 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 no. The Lord laid on him this charge. He arrested him. And then he, so then he gets for woe to me. May I be damned if I do not preach the gospel. For if I... If I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if, I, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. Now, I don't think he's giving us like two models of ministry here, and you can pick which one you want to go. He's, he's, using, he's contrasting by way of this illustration. The, the difference between, being in, between enlisting and being conscripted. He's saying, hey, I'm, I'm conscripted. I have, I have no claim. I'm a slave of Christ. I've been given a commission there's nothing else I can do. It wasn't for Paul, you know, this mission, if you choose to accept it. No, for Paul, it was this mission, period. It's what you're doing. The Lord intervened. And so Paul's life's gripped by the Lord's call, gripped by the Great Commission. And, and then he draws a section to a close, verse 18. Here we go. What then is my reward? What's my reward? If I, if I have no choice in the matter, but this necessity has been laid upon me, what could possibly be my reward in this? He's not complaining here. He's not kind of grumpy about this. He's not saying, you know, I really wish I could do something else. I love real estate, and I think I'd be a pretty good Jewish real estate agent or something like that. But I, I have no choice in doing this, so, so how can I get a reward in this? That's not what he's saying. He's, he, he's delighted. He's absolutely delighted to be doing what God called and equipped and constrained him to do. So verse 18, what then is my reward? Here it is, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. That's the reward for me. A gospel of free grace, freely offered. 
doing for the gospel's sake, motivated by love, whatever is necessary. We sang that on the bridge. That's reward for me. And that's what he's going to trace out in the remainder of this chapter. We're going to see this next week. And so when the, when the gospel compels us to love, we will, we will gladly restrain our rights, and that restraint will be rewarded in this way. And so here's the message. The, the gospel, this message of Christ crucified, it came to us freely. We, we prayed this. It's grace and faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And therefore, the Lord has his claim on our lives. And it's good. I mean, you see this. This, is, this gospel, it, it, is, it, is, it possesses us. Verse seven times in these last seven verses here. Gospel, gospel, gospel. It's everything to Paul. It should be everything to us. Not our rights, not our preferences, not our opinions or slogans or convictions. It's the gospel of Christ. It doesn't just fit into our lives. No, we are radically shaped by it. We fit into the Lord's story. We're cruciform people. And the more the gospel grips us, the more we'll be able to love others. And as we cherish the gospel above all else and we're compelled to love others, we will gladly restrain what are actually very legitimate rights at times when necessary. But that's not a gloomy way of living. No, that's true freedom. That's blessing. That's rewarding. That's a kind of God-glorifying boast that can't be emptied. That's the kind of joyful reward of seeing the gospel go out and save, as we're going to see next week. Next week, verse 19. Next verse. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. And then it goes on in verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Oh, there's reward. It's blessing. Paul's a wonderful, wonderful imperfect example of this but in Jesus we have a perfect example and not just a perfect example a perfect substitute because we fall so short of this and I only read it Philippians 2 you know the words will have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped he restrained his rights He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you were truly, truly willing to endure anything. Wrath, death, forsakenness, to open the way of the gospel to us. Father, in in view of this reality, may we expend ourselves, Lord, lay aside anything that would be a hindrance to the gospel, hindrance to love. And so, Lord, work this, this truth into our hearts, Lord, even as we sing that, that we, we, we confess that this is, this is very counter to the way we often think and feel. We We see other things as better, but we confess and we want to deeply believe, Jesus, that you're better than everything. May that be true for us. In Jesus' name, amen.